All right, listeners, welcome to episode seven of Know Your Enemy, the podcast about the American conservative movement and the American right. Uh, I'm Matt Sitman. I'm one of the podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my my friend, uh, Sam Otherbell. Hi, Matt. And this is a special episode for a number of reasons. We have some big announcements we're going to make, uh, but it also was our first episode with a guest. A guest. And it... it uh, it really well. It's bittersweet because our our guest was Patrick Blanchfield, who some of you will know for his really profound and deep writings on the problem of gun violence in the yeah. United States. And so it was great to have Pat on. He's again one of the thinkers and writers I really admire. But it was, on the other hand, you know, sad circumstances. It's a the, heavy the, episode. It's a heavy episode. I, I, um, as I told Pat when we started our conversation. I feel like every time one of these mass shooting tragedies happen, I read a lot of news, I, I look around for something to make sense of what's just happened, and literally the only person who I feel like makes some kind of sense that helps me situate myself politically, morally, ethically, historically, in, in, in the moments after these absolutely traumatizing, horrible uh, events that happen too often in American life is, is Pat. Right. He writes in a way that allows me to uh, engage with these events in a way that just doesn't feel so deeply nihilistic and discouraging. Right. So we are recording, uh, we're recording this on Friday, August 9th. That's less than a week after the shootings in uh, El Paso and Dayton. And when those things happened, uh, well, when those events happened, uh, Sam and I immediately we were texting each other and we, we knew we had to talk to Pat. So again, on one hand, we've, we have our first guest, but it's happening under circumstances that are, are shitty. Yeah, really shitty. Um, so we're going to introduce Pat later on and, and we'll introduce that conversation in a couple minutes. But this also is an interesting and important episode uh, because basically this is the first episode that will happen as part of a partnership we've entered into with Descent Magazine. Woo! Yeah. So, uh, you know, like a lot of publications, Descent was looking to beef up their kind of podcast roster, uh -huh. you might say. And so uh, a few weeks ago, Tim Shank, the co-editor of Descent, reached out to us and said, we really like what you're doing. Uh, would you be willing to maybe partner with with us? And, and so uh, that's going to happen, uh, or that is happening. And that means a few things practically. Uh, for one, this we are now a kind of dissent podcast. Know your enemy, a podcast <laughs> associated with dissent in some way. <laughs> right. Uh, and what that means practically is that every time a new episode comes out, dissent will plug it. Uh, Belabored is one of their main podcasts right now. So every time a new episode... Which is of, totally a great podcast if it you're is. a follower of the American labor movement. Right. So every time a new episode of Belabored comes out, it's essentially like new content on their website. And so something similar will happen with us. When a new episode comes out, it'll be featured on Descent's website. It'll go out to their email list and, and on social media. So it's a kind of practical partnership in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we will give Descent this... Good, good content. Good, good. And and they will help us spread the word. And we're really excited about it. I mean, I, I've i said this before in different contexts, but Descent, I, can, I view Descent Magazine as my home away from home. Mm -hmm. I'm an editor at Commonweal, 
but in terms of my intellectual home, uh, I mean, I have a strong affinity for dissent. They published some of the, the, the longer and I think more substantial essays I've written. Uh, their co-editor, Michael Kazin, is my old teacher. And just, I admire dissent a lot. And I'm really happy about this just because it's, it's one of those situations where, uh, like, I really believe in what Descent is doing. Yeah. And so I'm very proud to be partnering with them and very pleased that they kind of approved of what we're doing yeah, here. Yeah, right. It's very flattering that uh, they get and support what we're trying to accomplish with the podcast. We, uh, we should say that uh, at the moment, <laughs> this is not a, uh, a financial agreement of any kind. <laughs> uh, we're not re- receiving any money from Descent. We are very grateful for what they're doing for us, but uh, we're not like suddenly on staff or on the, on the, on the payroll. On the masthead or something. Right. So, so the only financial support we get for the podcast still is only from Patreon. So if you're someone who's donated to us, who's patronizing uh, the podcast, you don't have to think, oh, you know, are Matt and Sam raking in the bucks from, uh, <laughs> from this small left-wing magazine based in New York. No, we're not. But it's worth saying, this does not mean that you're not getting anything out of this, because part of our agreement with Descent is that uh, if you are a West Coast Straussian subscriber, which is to say the, the $10 a month level support for the podcast, um, one of the things Descent is doing to kind of entice you to support us is they're offering free digital subscriptions if you support us at the $10 a month level. And so uh, if you are interested in the podcast, but also uh, interested in excellent writing and forceful argument and a, a really interesting, I think, left-wing perspective on politics and culture and society, uh, you can support us and get a free subscription to Dissent. Yeah. So please consider doing that if you're on the fence about supporting us, or even if you're maybe even at the $5 a month mark. If, if you bump it up to, to $10 a month, you can get a free subscription out of it. So we're really grateful for that. And as always, uh, the, the Meat and Potatoes episodes will be out in front of the paywall. Yeah. And we do still offer uh, behind the paywall episodes for anyone who supports us from $5 a month yeah. upward. And we, uh, we, we, there will be a new bonus episode for Patreon subscribers this week, right. uh, which is, I think, a very interesting and intimate discussion of kind of some of our thoughts about the nature of friendship, the nature of um, sort of political obligations. And uh, right, yeah. So uh, within a few days, um, that episode will be will be available. And it, and it was an interesting conversation. It was. A conversation Sam and I had that again it got kind of interestingly personal. And uh, well, we don't need to get into all of it now. Yeah, no. But, if you want to hear more about it, you yeah. got to subscribe to the Patreon. Oh, Matt, you wanted to make a, a correction. That is right. Uh, so this is the first ever "Know Your Enemy" correction. We get into this actually in the the bonus episode uh, for Patreon subscribers. Uh, but this week was an interesting week online for Know Your Enemy. But one of the things that happened was Yoram Hazoni, one of the conveners of the National Conservatism Conference that we talked about last episode, he very generously tweeted out a link to the episode. But in the back and forth we had with him, he pointed out that they had, in fact, uh, announced who the funders were for the conference. 
So in our episode, we said, we don't know who's funding this. And, and Hazoni didn't specify whether they had put this information out online or whether just at the conference they had announced who had sponsored it. Uh, but the idea that no one knows anything about who sponsored this, that conference, uh, I suppose, is not true. Yeah. And so, again, that was almost a throwaway line with Sam and I. We joking about like right-wing dark money. Right. But as it happens, uh, Yoram has, in fact, told us that it is not a secret who funded that, so we just wanted to point that out. We don't know who funded it, <laughs> right. but, but apparently it's possible to find out. It is possible to find out, and uh, uh, because we take getting things right seriously here, yeah. we did just want to point that out since since Europe had noted that yeah. to us. And as we, again, talk about more in the Patreon episode, we appreciate the fact that uh, Hazoni, with whom we have deep and fundamental disagreements about almost everything <laughs> yeah almost everything we do appreciate that uh he listened to the podcast and he uh acknowledged that at least we were representing their ideas faithfully right in a good faith way so so that's kind of the housekeeping yeah. uh the patreon's still going we're partnering with dissent there's a new behind the paywall patreon episode i just wanted to say also again which i we've said in previous episodes to uh thank uh our friend uh will epstein who has generously allowed us to use his uh really i think excellent and interesting uh music for our intro and outro and interstitial music and uh again if you're if you like what you hear at the beginning of these episodes then you should go online and and search high water and will epstein to find his various uh records and music right will's music has been great and and one small shout out uh at the end of last episode our outro music was the song my hometown from sons of bill and that song was written by one of my best friends james wilson who's their lead singer and to be honest i didn't ask james if we could use that uh but before we did so i hope james doesn't sue us but uh if you're interested in great country music uh everyone should check out sons of bill yeah. Thank, thank you to them. I love whether that Whether they song. know it or not. It is a great song. Yeah. So as we mentioned, this is our first uh, episode that features an interview. And so this is an episode where Sam and I actually talk a little less, in part because we really just want to learn from Pat, from his many years of study and thinking and writing about the problem of gun violence in the United States. And so for those of you who don't know Pat, uh, he's an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. And I think more specifically for this episode, he has a book coming out in March of 2020 called Gunpower, and it'll be published by Verso. And uh, it can you can pre-order it now, and we're going to have a link to that in the show notes. And I am really looking forward to reading that book, and I think all of you should really consider buying it or pre-ordering it. So that's Pat. We sat down with him. He very generously gave his time. He did a lot of media this week. Yeah. Uh, and so this was a conversation he had at the tail end of a kind of emotionally draining and, and tough week. We're very proud that he's our first guest, and we really hope you learn as much from it as we did. Yeah. Well, here it is, our interview with Patrick Blanchfield, who as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most brilliant thinkers about the, the problem of gun violence and the way that it relates to American history and American politics. Right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Patrick Blanchfield. Hi, Pat. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. This is really, uh, as soon as we began discussing this episode, you were the first person, both Sam and I, thought to ask to be on it. Uh, so this is a real treat for us and for our listeners, and we're really grateful that you took the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me on. It's I've been looking forward to this all week, and uh, yeah, to have an opportunity to talk in a more sustained and deep way as opposed to trying to shoehorn against the grain stuff and shorter stuff. It's really, it's really appreciated. So I'm really glad to be here. And we're recording this uh, on the Friday after the shootings of last weekend, both in El Paso and in Dayton. Um, and so I thought to begin with, you know, every time one of these mass shootings uh, happens, and they happen with a lot of regularity, but it seems like the ones that uh, manage to kind of percolate up and really grab the attention of people in the media. You know, there's kind of an inevitable argument or arguments about immediate measures to take. And the conversation devolves, you might say, into arguments about this or that specific gun control measure. Um, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? Do we have the political will to do this or that? Uh, will this be effective? Will that be effective? Uh, and rather than getting into that kind of question, I thought to start with, we might just take a step back and ask you about your general framework for understanding these mass shootings. I'll start by actually echoing the kind of frustration and exhaustion with the increasingly sort of syncopated cycle of outrage, trauma, grief, combined with immediate desire for some sort of dramatic intervention or, or singular policy platform, mm -hmm. right? And in, in some ways, that's sort of the point of departure for a lot of the thinking I've been doing over the past decade, um, but also is, I think, a, a key part of, of the framework, which is to know how there is a, on the one hand, there's a tremendously affectively saturated overdetermined urgency to these singular events when they happen, right? Mm -hmm. We, right. people are horrified and we adopt these postures of something has to be done. To put it very bluntly, people want catharsis, right? They want to do something that in a singular, immediate way will make people feel vindicated or to use an almost religious language, like righteous in a way that directly on, on the same level of intensity as they feel bad because of the tragedies themselves. Right. I didn't even realize this when I was writing it, but I wrote a piece for The New Republic this week about the terrorism discourse that has arisen. Um, and maybe we can get into that later. But I, I wrote like two sentences that I realize are totally inspired by having read so much of your work this week. But I wrote that the demands you know, for action, even the sort of action that I think is unwise is understandable because amid such tragedy, there's always a desire for cathartic action for repertory response commensurate with the degree of the injury. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's, it's interesting because like a lot of the discourse is so saturated with this religious language, right? Like we are sacrificing children to Moloch, right? We worship the gun. And interestingly enough, the framework that people seem to want to like decathect that sense of frustration and horror is also a type of like redemptive sacrificial logic. Like these children will not have died in vain. In some ways that impulse is part of the problem because people want to, we want to feel as vindicated by what, quote, what we do 
right away as we've been made to feel bad. And what that ultimately leads into is our doubling down on ultimately the basic conditions that produce this violence in the first place. Right. So what what are those conditions for you? What are we doubling down on that's part of the problem? Yeah. So, so like, if you look at the situation surrounding both gun violence and debates over gun control in the United States, you'll notice two things. Right up front, you'll notice that everything, there's the intense polarization that is all structured around what you could call binary oppositions, right? Gun rights versus gun control, uh, pro-gun versus anti-gun, Democrat versus Republican, right? Like, and in, in and of itself, that's suggestive, right? There's that. Um, and the other thing you notice is that there is a kind of interesting conceptual siloing between how different episodes of violence get talked about or don't get talked about, right? People, mm-hmm. when mass shootings happen, we pay a lot of attention to them, but we are very specifically not even really thinking about mass shootings. We're thinking about rampage killings in public space. Generally, you know, paradigmatically, it's a guy with a rifle, right? And what my work, what I'm trying to do in my work is being like, well, what if we consider those, that first set of binary oppositions as not actually really oppositions, but as operating together dialectically to produce a kind of ongoing state of affairs. Okay. And the second thing is what if we look at those sort of conceptual siloings between different kinds of violence, between different kinds of gun violence, not just mass shootings, but, you know, um, family annihilation, suicide, police violence, et cetera. If somehow those two processes are related, what if there is something, there is an order about what you could call like the homeostatic distribution of violence that that other, those like dialectical sort of false oppositions basically maintain. And I think once you, you do that and you have a sufficiently wide angle view of this and you historicize it properly, you realize, well, this is actually a way that we're just sort of metabolizing a fundamental underlying social order. And that's what I, what I call in my book, and, and I think it's a useful term, is, is I call gun power. And that's an attempt to create a, a vocabulary so that we can talk about both these exemplary events, but also the day-to-day quotidian churn of gun violence in a way that allows us to break out of that sort of binary language and think of a new vocabulary for talking about this stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was one thing that had struck me in your work and that we talked about a little bit um, before we recorded the podcast. Part of the way you conceive of your project is breaking down these false conceptual silos, um, including homicide and suicide, domestic violence versus mass shootings, police violence versus criminal violence, and war abroad versus oppression at home. For me, I'd be interested just to hear, you know, maybe with with each of those oppositions, what does the what what does the op, what is the dialectical relationship to the between them produce? What is the like ideological purpose of of setting those things against each other? And what would be productive about stopping treating them as these binaries? When we think about mass shootings, we think about, you know, people rampaging through public space, killing strangers. Is is that's sort of like the generic base unmarked form of this. And that's certainly what a lot of people say when you hear, you know, talking heads talk about this or you have a conversation at the dinner table, right? However, statistically speaking, if you have a functional definition of what a mass shooting is as being just a body count number of people shot fatally in one episode, right? The majority, the overwhelming majority of American mass shootings happen inside homes, 
They are men liquidating their children, current or former partners, and family members. The, the local story of like the family annihilation where someone just kills their kids and their ex or current partner and then themselves, those, those don't necessarily rise to national consciousness, right? No. And it's interesting too, while even many of the mass shootings that we focus on in the national discourse start in the home. Right. Right. They, uh, or they involve similar dynamics. And I think here of Sandy Hook is a classic example, right? Before Adam Lanza went to the Sandy Hook school with his AR, he, uh, he shot his mother multiple times in the head while she slept. Or if you look even at one of the first um, modern mass shootings, that, you know, happens in, in the mid 60s in the University of Texas, Austin. And there's a, the fellow who climbs up in the water tower and starts sniping at people. He had it earlier that morning by killing his mother. Or if you look at this episode very recently, this past weekend in, uh, in Ohio, the shooter there targeted uh, his sibling. And you can also look at, here's another data point. If you look, historically speaking, at many of these episodes, and this is the case in Sandy Hook, it appears to have been the case um, in like El Paso too, authorities are oftentimes alerted that actually there is something distressing happening in this space, right? Four years before the Sandy Hook shooting, um, a friend of Nancy Lanza, uh, Adam Lanza's mother, contacted the uh, contacted police to let them know that Adam had access to uh, an assault rifle and that he was going to shoot up the Sandy Hook school. The police looked into it and could do nothing because the guns were Nancy's. Same In the same way, I think slightly before the El Paso shooting, the shooter's mother also contacted police to let them know that she was concerned about her son's uh, AK. And I think that's, again, the details on that are still developing. I don't want to be wrong about this. But what I would argue here is that these are examples, what those examples suggest, there's a, temp- there's a tendency here for us to say, oh, these are institutions not working. Right. That's what I was going to say. That's usually the frame in which people can understand that problem. That's right. Like we, we want this is a dysfunction. We need we need more surveillance. We need more cops. Something some something some slip some switch was tripped that should not have been right. Or there were red flags. This is language used that were not used. That were not like observed or seen. The warnings were not heeded. Right. My answer would be actually this is the system working as designed. That we have a system a social order that is so invested in preserving the prerogatives of men specifically to own guns and to ultimately liquidate their families and themselves that we are willing to tolerate functionally mass shootings in the mode of rampage killings outside the home. And what I do in my work and what I think we should do in our discourse is think about these things, not just being organically related as a matter of policy, but as reflecting the priorities and processes of a particular type of social order, of being about reproducing particular hierarchies, particular logics of territorial control, and particular um, prerogatives to dispose of other human beings. Hmm. And they're all interconnected. That's the key thing to get away from this, is that mass shootings also implicate naive distinctions between the home front and elsewhere. So when Pete Buttigieg says the common refrain that like these weapons of war should, 
are meant to be um, used abroad and not at home. Yeah, not on our streets. I have vast reservoirs of contempt for that as a truly tendentious kind of moral reasoning. But again, like, what is he really saying there, right? That these weapons are okay when Americans are carrying them elsewhere. But when they come back, then that's unacceptable. Right. And I would argue here again, this is about preserving a particular type of false logic of basically, to be very blunt about it, spatial and racial hygiene. We're very, very invested as Americans in a particular type of national chauvinism that's all about understanding what we have here is exceptional and is being hygienically separated from what we do elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And we don't like thinking about blowback and we don't like thinking about how that makes us complicit in certain things. Right. But from the very start, these mass shootings have always been one way or another related to um, American militarism, to American imperial expansion, to, um, you know, our, our pointillist American empire, to borrow a phrase, to be sort of like give a couple examples of this, right? Again, go back to that, that mass shooting in 66 in UT Austin, right? The guy who climbs up into the water, into the clock tower and starts shooting people on the campus there is a former Marine, if memory serves. Um, but also, you know, there are many other examples of this where it's like, there's a kind of history rhymes a lot here, right? If you look at Parkland, the gun that the, the young man who shot up Marty Stoneman Douglas High School was carrying is a Smith & Wesson M&P. M&P stands for a military and police it's a civilian version of uh, is an attempt to replicate for civilians a patrol rifle um, or an infantry rifle that is deployed all over the world, right? And this is why, like, there are other there there deeper there's some deeper stuff going on here too, in the sense that, like, if you look at like the etymology of like the phrase mass shooting, you know, which is again saying I don't see people talk about a lot, but it's, it's a major feature of my work. Like, prior to the contemporary moment, prior to like the '90s. Uh, if you were to use the phrase mass shooting, um, and again, this is a, it's not a phrase that occurs often, it would refer to war crimes. It would refer to Nazis liquidating people in Baba Yar. Um, it's mass shooting, getting groups of people together and just shooting them. Um, but also one of the last, here's a, here's a thought, and I get, come in, I get into this much more in the book, but one of the last occurrences of the phrase mass shooting, before it has its contemporary usage, it goes dormant for some, several decades, uh, is talking about the My Lai Massacre. In right. Vietnam, hmm. we don't like thinking about how the way in which we empower Americans to control space abroad through liquidating people with small arms, either directly or by giving them to proxies, mirrors the way in which individual Americans will go about liquidating and controlling space to vindicate their own grievances at home. Mm-hmm. And this this is definitely Ballou's work is, is present here and relevant because it's like, well, much of the story of the white power movement since the Vietnam War is about aggrieved men reenacting or seeking to pursue in an organic way campaigns of basically white male territorial control against what they see as elites who have backstabbed them and against human beings who they see as inferior mongrels or, you know, verminized others. And that's that. I mean, like, guys, is El Paso, right? Well, what would how would you Pat, then summarize the kind of historical roots of this problem then? My claim is that this system that I call gun power emerges from, you can't, you can't separate gun power from the institution of chattel slavery and ethnic cleansing slash genocide of indigenous peoples. Right. I would argue that this social order comes about in 
North America specifically through the competition of multiple great powers for control over ever-expanding territorial reach. In this crucible of what can at times seem like omnidirectional violence, mm-hmm. right, where you have indigenous proxies fighting of uh, fighting other indigenous proxies, or you have white settlers dealing with um, slave rebellions, or also trying to triangulate vis-a-vis the British, or always triangulating vis-a-vis the French and the Spanish. And but but the, in this space, guns are constantly circulating, mm-hmm, and right. that the system of American capitalism, but also the transatlantic free market, and crucially, the idea of racial difference is negotiated and enforced over guns. Hmm. And it's negotiated and enforced over guns, both through like the arms trade in that period, which is a fascinating topic I'd love to talk more about if you're interested, but also through the delegation of the right to kill to individual actors, to individual right. men. Mm-hmm. I think that puts it pretty clearly. And because I think that for listeners, it's always easier to grasp these concepts in relation to particular events, I'm going to try to I'm going to draw your attention to a couple things. I was very compelled in one of your N plus one pieces, where you talk about uh, 2012, and the relationship between the murder of Trayvon Martin, and the uh, Sandy Hook uh, mass shooting. This is, yeah, so this, that, that, thank you for, for, for keeping me grounded in, in specific examples. And I will say part of the reason this book is proving very hard and slow to finish is that it's trying to, t- it's trying to toggle back and forth between the, the very granular and the abstract. Right. So like here, here's a great example, 2012, right? People like to think, for whatever reason, people are very committed to thinking of these two things separately, those two events, Right. You occasionally see a tweet that makes the rounds. Um, I forget who this misbegotten asshole is that, that originally posted it being like, we should have realized in retrospect that when America decided that killing kids in Sandy Hook was OK, like that nothing would be done. Right. Type of nihilism. Right. What's really striking about that is like, well, why is Sandy Hook the example when Trayvon Martin was also a child whose liquidation apparently is not? is important, right? Which again gets to what's the distinction between these two events? Why are we separating quote unquote indiscriminate mass violence in one space from this one-on-one encounter of liquid personal liquidation in another Florida versus Connecticut. And once you, once you sort of think about these things together, you notice certain things that actually connect them in a lot of ways. For example, the mass shooting in Connecticut profoundly reflects inequalities in race run this like flip the script for a second and imagine that and a black woman's a, a single mother has a young son who is a teenager who is constantly drawing pictures of his classmates being murdered and who there have been multiple intervention people have raised concerns about the content of his materials that he's submitting in class that uh authorities would not really get involved right and then she'd buy him all kinds of guns, and that would not raise further red flags. I mean, folks, I mean, like Tamira Rice gets shot for playing with a toy gun in public within seconds. Adam, meanwhile, Adam Lanz's mother is taking him into the range and giving him a new pistol for his birthday. Right? And in the case of Trayvon Martin, you have an apparatus where another person, George Zimmerman, is patrolling space. Again, he's a self-appointed community watchman, right? Much like, you know, you have all these motherfuckers running around on the colonial frontier, sees this young man that he doesn't belong, 
assaults him and kills him, and there are no consequences for it. Meanwhile, Adam Lanza is raising all kinds of red flags, and he is to the point which the police are literally informed about what he's going to do four years before he does it, and nothing happens. So, again, think these things together and think what type of social order is producing this. And it's an order that's attempting to maximize the prerogatives of people to be armed so that they can kill certain people. And that's willing to absorb even the spillover that that entails in, in Sandy Hook. Right. That was, that was going to be my question is that in your framework, is Sandy Hook excess? Is Sandy Hook um, sort of the, the price paid for the maintenance of a system that allows George Zimmerman to kill Trayvon Martin? Or is, does Sandy Hook also play some kind of constitutive role in gun power? Do you, know, do you understand my question? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, there are a bunch of different ways to, to think about it. What I would say, like the first thing to point out up front and just like straightforwardly is that everyone is disposable in this system. Mm. Some people are more disposable than others, dramatically so. Right. Right. So much. Yeah. But everyone is fundamentally disposable. And that's not and you can that's not even the case of Sandy. You can think about like how white men in the work of Jonathan Metzl, for example, in Missouri, the sociologist and psychiatrist documents this. There are lots of white men that are arming themselves to protect their spaces that they control, their rural homes, their houses and subdivisions, etc., with weapons from what they fear are, you know, quote unquote, black gangbangers who are coming in from elsewhere. And the Missouri example is key here because you can look at like the stuff that happens in Ferguson and how that produces a white backlash. Right. And what do those men actually do with the guns? They shoot themselves. Mm-hmm. Suicide. Right. But but again, the idea here is people are so they're so invested in their prerogatives as the racialized controllers of that space that they're willing to die for it and kill their own families for it. Mm. So. The key thing to think about is what are the consequences for both those things? What does the system gain? Right. right? And the consequence post Sandy Hook is doubling down on guns. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the other thing that I think the other key here is, is that w- what I want to think about when I talk about gun power is that it's, it's a totalizing system that is always doubling down on itself. Right. So in the wake of Sandy Hook, what do you have? You have, you have a push for police in spaces above all though. It's a push for police, not in those wealthy spaces, though there is some of that, but just arming police in general and deploying them across schools. And of course, that's going to disproportionately target and yield young people of color getting killed. Mm-hmm. Right. So the other thing here, and this is something I want, I want to flag, and this is why I think having a wide enough aperture and thinking historically is so key. It's that the, cate- the racial categories that define American society, whether it be now or in the settler colonial era and in the entire period between those two are not static. That race emerges from violence and from control. Right. There, so, so you have this problem, like, for, like, if, you know, for those of us who have, you know, um, something I struggle with as someone who has Irish ancestry, right? There is a way in which Irish people become white in America because they are willing to inflict lethal violence with guns on non-whites. Right. To be cops. Exactly. The cops, right? There's a reason they're called paddy wagons. Yep. I would look at the work of Benjamin Madley, who's an American historian, writing about what he calls California's killing machine, which is essentially the second half of the 19th century in California, where, again, you have an apparatus of basically the state buying arms and giving arms to not just soldiers, but to people who are effectively death squads to kill enormous amounts of indigenous people. 
Hmm. There are even Irish folks involved in that, right? right? So there's a way in which Irish people become white by wielding lethal gun violence against indigenous people. Right. And there's also a way in the present moment, this can be, I'd love to go into the neoliberalism stuff once I think this is adequately clear for you and the listeners. There's a way in which George Zimmerman becomes white by killing Trayvon Martin. Absolutely. And the key thing here is to understand that these positions are very fragile, right? Like if you look at what's happened to George Zimmerman since, I mean, I keep on where every time his name shows up in the news, I'm like, oh, he's killed someone else. He was threatened women, et cetera. Right? Or he's going to wind up, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if George Zimmerman dies peacefully in his sleep. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and much in the same way in which all these white men in, say, Missouri are killing themselves with guns that they bought to kill people who might be, you know, implausibly coming in from Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, even that po- whiteness is a position of, prerogative of the prerogative to violence that other right. people can participate in and other people can like mimic right but that it's it, it's no panacea for the people in that space as well and the key thing again is when that violence happened when people are consumed by it whether they're black brown whatever white the system doubles down the key thing is to always double down yeah i was gonna say like it seems like people think of increased gun sales after a mass shooting as somehow perverse, right? But what you're saying is that it's not perverse at all. It's exactly what is supposed to happen or what is structured to happen because of how gun power recreates itself. That's precisely right. This, the idea of social reproduction is so key here, right? Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, to make sure to define social reproduction for the listeners when you make this point. Yeah. The, the, I think the most useful way for us to think about social reproduction for our purposes is how inequalities are passed down intergenerationally mm-hmm. between groups and classes. Mm-hmm. One thinks oftentimes about, you know, the 14 words that all those white supremacists and white power people really like about how you, you must secure a future for white children in the future, etc. What that means very pragmatically is about we have to keep killing black children young, right? It means indigenous families need to be not allowed to thrive. It means we have to have regular episodes like, say, you know, the elimination of Black Wall Street or the um, continuous concentration, because it's always tied to space, of practices like, and Ferguson is a great example of this, police doing discretionary stops, right? Or having asset forfeiture that's attempting to expropriate and to prevent mobility for people of particular racial and ethnic groups and spaces from, from basically flourishing. So what guns allow our society to do is that once we flood all these spaces with guns and we have this regular churn of violence, that that very, in a way that's, that's almost eerie, it helps maintain a homeostatic distribution of inequality over time. I, there's a thought exercise to do something, which is very, it's a bleak one. But if you, if you imagine a body sitting in a morgue, let's, let's give this body a race and um, a sex. If the person is a young white man, there is statistically, most likely, they um, kill themselves somewhere rural. If that body is that of a young black man, the odds are almost identical that they were killed by a stranger in urban space. 
if that person, if that body is a that of a woman, it is almost certain that they were killed not by a stranger, which is how most of those urban killings happen, but that they were killed in the space of the home by someone who is either current or former partner. Right? So the way the way social reproduction enters into this is to understand that sort of like very basic stratified body count as being about containing inequality within certain categories, premature death, distributing that among certain categories of persons. And once you sort of have that perspective, right, which is very hard to metabolize and very distressing to think about, that implicates a lot of different things, but also like to, to, to bring it into like a more contemporary gun control conversations, right? You have to look at like what's in the wake of high profile mass shootings that de- that target people who are quote unquote valuable. I use Sandy is a great example of this because these are young children, overwhelmingly white, and one of the wealthiest zip codes in the country. What America does in a bipartisan way is double down on policing that overall means more young black and brown kids getting killed. And it means more probably police officers killing their partners too. On a systemic level, gun power is all about doubling down. On an individual level, everything is experienced as double binds, right? So let's just stipulate for a second, like what the landscape looks like when we talk about, again, distribution of lethal and other kinds of gun violence on women and people who are, you know, not gender conforming within the population across the board. It's absolutely the case that women are, are extremely vulnerable on block to gun violence. But also it's important to know that that tracks to other kinds of violence as well. So to be very granular, if you have a home in which there's some kind of violence already present, you know, if there's whether it's physical abuse, emotional abuse, other types of verbal abuse, that radically magnifies the chance that if you put a gun in there, a woman's going to get shot to death. Now, I, I, again, I'm, no, I'm not saying it's whether it's her gun, it's her partner's gun. Just, is it, if there's a gun in that space, the outcome is much more likely that a woman's going to be killed by it. But consider like what the options are that are available sort of within mainstream ideology on the, among liberals and conservatives for dealing with the problem. What conservatives do, right, basically, is like women need to arm themselves, right? They're going to double down in that way. They're going to directly be like, Women need to get guns. And there's there's almost a breathtaking cynicism to it because you're like, well, look at the public health data, right? And once you have a gun in that situation, women are much more likely to get killed. But but you also have to be like, well, actually, women are a growing segment of gun owners and handgun owners, handgun owners specifically. And again, this is why I can't moralize uh, against people. That's one thing I haven't, I, I just can't, I refuse to do in my work at this point is tell people what to do facing circumstances that I can't, uh, that I can't, that, that they're not my own. I find it's impossible, for example, for me to, t- to say that a woman who is threatened regularly with death by a partner who is considering the possibility of being just killed cannot defend herself. But so, so, so that's a very clear way to double down. Being like, well, women just need to arm themselves. And 
and then there's a kind of there's a real bad faith there insofar as again if you look at like the cases of how the criminal justice system treats women when they do defend themselves right Sintoya Brown Marissa Alexander etc if a woman uh, does kill her abuser that abuse is not gonna is not gonna be a mitigating factor in her defense of course why didn't she just leave or some other bullshit like that. And of course, the reality is, it's when women are planning to leave that they're actually the most vulnerable for getting killed, statistically speaking. So there's that kind of obvious doubling down there. But liberals too, liberals double down in their own way. And this is a delicate thing to talk about. But oftentimes, across the board for many liberals, the answer to gun violence is also to insert guns into situations, except to make sure they're being carried by quote unquote legitimate actors. So it's all about police showing up to disarm abusers. It's all about police showing up to like protect the woman at the last moment. But again, this is also a false narrowing of perspective and it ignores stuff. Because like, if you look at the statistical data, like, but this is stuff liberals don't like to talk about, but po- police families, police specifically are dramatically more likely to be domestic abusers than pretty much any other professional class across the board, except for military folks. Is the answer to the situation to have police who are most likely also to be beating their partners show up and somehow vindicate things there? What's erased in this, again, is that we don't like to think about other points of entry where like, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't be just thinking about this transaction that happens in the space between a woman or a partner, or current or, be they current or former, just in terms of what happens once there's a gun in play, maybe there could be interventions that happen well before this or options that are made available to a woman well before she has to fear for her life that may be conditioning that circumstances. But generally what we do is we just double down. We, 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 could, we tell people to be presented with double binds. And like, look, those double binds happen in other ways too. Imagine you're a, a woman who is, um, you love your partner. Like you read the news, oftentimes police just show up and they fucking kill the guy. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not, it's not about moral judgment, but considering what are the options people experience in extremis? And I mean, it's a moral dilemma. Do you call a police officer? Do you call the police officer knowing that they just go, show up and kill the person you love? Fuck, they may even kill you. In liberal circles, if you say this type of thing, it's like, well, you're not protecting women adequately. But the truth is, the system is not designed to protect women. And this is where we can start talking about the neoliberalism stuff too, because it's like, the landscape in domestic violence specifically, the landscape since uh, for the past 30 years has been a systematic defunding and impoverishment of social resources and a elimination of alternative spaces, alternative earning possibilities. Social services besides the police. Exactly. We just throw police at the problem. And then we're and then we blame women for like not leaving or why didn't she go? And it's like, well, maybe she. Maybe she was trying to leave, but she didn't have anywhere to go. And also she was scared about the police showing up and right. killing her partner. Right. It, there's a way in which like the, at the the language of individual volunteerism, whether it be get a gun or call the cops, both of those serve for the as ways for the system to double down and for us to not talk about how we are systematically just stripping the wiring out of the walls of what's already a collapsing social mm-hmm. safety net. Right. And we individually responsibilize women for, and then this is like use that language of responsabilization. We make them responsible for their own fate and for the terrible choices that they, they have to face because we are eliminating options for them at every other step up to that point. Right. Right. 
You can look and find out how women's self-defense cases turn out. They do not turn out well. You can find publicly accessibly the rates about uh, like all this data about why police are not the people to deal with domestic violence. Like they may be the last people to deal with domestic violence in multiple senses, both like morally, but also like they're the ones who show up at the very end to basically shoot somebody. Also, read the headlines, right? This case in Florida, woman was, is being persecuted by her partner or for, I believe, for, for her current boyfriend, it may have been, maybe a month or so ago. She shows up at the police department with a car full of his guns because she's like, he's going to shoot me. What do the police do? They arrest her for theft. Wow. Again, that is the system. Not, that's, not a, that's not the system being dysfunctional. That is the system working. That is the system protecting the interests and prerogatives of the people it is designed mm-hmm. to protect. Right. And we don't, liberals want to just reform it. And I, I, my question would be, how do you reform a system that is designed to empower abusers? Right. I think Matt has a question. Yeah. Well, the, I think that's a good transition to the the neoliberal framework you use uh, to talk about gun violence and uh, specifically our response to it. Uh, you wrote a piece for Splinter uh, last year uh, called The Market Can't Solve a Massacre. Uh, and I thought, you know, we can maybe define neoliberalism for our for our listeners, for those who, who don't know what the term refers to. But it, it, it was interesting to me, your discussion of the way we kind of privatize or individualize the responsibility for this. Uh, at one point in your piece, you say this. I'm just going to quote from it. Neoliberalism is not just a way of organizing political economy. It imposes a regime of feelings and behaviors as well. Neoliberalism doesn't just pull the rug of basic and social welfare out from under people's feet. It makes them responsible for getting back on their feet and blames them for landing on their ass in the first place, which I thought was very well put. Uh, But also the way you pointed out that it connects to the fatalism, the resignation we have when these things happen, that nothing can ever get done. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you could just briefly define neoliberalism, but then kind of lay out very quickly what that framework adds to what you've already said. For our purposes, like narrowly as we talk now, like let's just think of it in terms of like what's its like ultimate signified. A simple way to put it, it's like there are political problems and then there are market problems. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And the concept of a market problem, just the way things are, increasingly supplants what would be at other points in time, self-evidently political problems, right? right? More abstractly or more, more, more granularly what that means is it's like, well, um, it's not about what people are owed or what they're, what they deserve or what outcomes need to be guaranteed in terms of protecting basic human dignity, in terms of protecting people's rights to life. It's instead we need to maximize the choices that individuals can choose in different circumstances. Right. Right. So even as we're actually basically, again, like stripping out the wiring of the social fabric, this is the tortured, like Tom Friedman as a metaphor. <laughs> I'm sorry. Basically like, like pillaging the stuff that ties us together. We're making people more and more responsible for dealing with failures of, you know, basic like social welfare. Right. Um, and this is like, here's a great stuff. Like, I'm sure that people who are listening to this who have gone to like fucking HR trainings on how to deal with a mass right, shooter. Right. And Jesus Christ, like you work in like a you work in a fucking Dairy Queen or in a cubicle. Why the hell should you know how to deal with a mass shooter? How should that be on like a, the list of problems? 
have to right. deal with, right? But also, like, there's a whole industry. This is the other part of it. It's monetizing right. this. Why is it? Why is it a multi-billion dollar industry? People who are teaching you how to do this shit. Or as you point out, the the products you can buy, uh, bulletproof backpacks or folders. You know, there is a whole line of products now you can buy meant to defend yourself against these shootings. Right. And it's interesting because we've been talking about it this way, like I'm starting to think about all of this in terms of like perpetual expansion. Yeah. The the thing about the thing about uh, the responses to these mass shootings is there's a focus on market choice. And then the market choices that become available are all things that presume the persistence of gun power. Right. So they everybody makes money, capital benefits, and then um, and we die. Yeah, no, it's like there's a whole realm of things where we're like, here's like, first off, you need to learn how to MacGyver your way out of a mass shooting, mm-hmm. right? which is fucking just nuts. And that's, that is the kind of classic neoliberal move, which is to put the onus on the individual to kind of make the right choices, to be responsible in a certain kind of way for their own fate. Exactly. And like, it's, and also you can see how this perpetuates inequality, right? You look at the price of these fucking bulletproof backpacks, it's a couple hundred dollars, right? Not everybody's going to mm-hmm. afford those things, folks, mm-hmm. right? And, and and also if you look at like every time there's a mass shooting, I, 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 re, I follow this very closely. There is always people talking more and more about how, you know, I really do need to put the kids in a homeschool because I'm scared of this. So the mass shooting becomes a reason for us to, you know, lower attendance of public right. schools and to defund them right. further. Right. Meanwhile, we're spending what, like four or five billion dollars a year on schools of security. So some of the money is coming from there. But also, like, again, think about it. It's it's so warped in terms of these incentive structures where it's like, well, we're going to give teachers, you know, a couple hundred dollars a year if they carry a Glock and do their own training, which is bad. But also, like, in some ways, this, this, this election cycle has been very clarifying because, like, you know, John Delaney, who's basically just gonna not say things that are gonna get me put on a database, but like it's basically Satan incarnate, right? With that sort of like shit nibbling grin. Like, do you see his answer to like how we're gonna deal with this? Oh, the insurance. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, the plan well we need we need to have individual people pay for insurance premiums so when you buy a gun, right? So that if you if you have if you we'll have a surveillance thing and if you're uh, if you if your social media posts have been white nationalist enough, then when when you buy a gun, you're gonna need to pay a little bit more right. for it. That's incredible. Like, talk, like it's, it's almost like satanically perverse. It's like both because it's like, oh, we're going to monetize this at every possible level and also perpetuate inequality. Right. But also, like, what's the obverse of this? Like, if I'm rich enough, do I get to hunt people for sport because I can pay my fucking premiums? Right. It's madness. Um, but, you know, it, it happens another way, too. So it's like the flips. Like the, the trick of this, and I want to plug the work of, of Adam Kotzko, who's a brilliant theorist of um of like the, basically of like neoliberal morality and neoliberal theology is that it's not just about monetizing and cons- and basically fucking people while telling them you're giving them options, right? Because it's like again, like I'm like I'm thinking like I'm dealing with healthcare bills right now, right? I I have the option of a million different healthcare options, none of which I can afford. Yeah, but at least I'm enriched by having the options. If you look at uh, and Adam Burke is very helpful, I think, in clarifying for this. But like the other element of this is blame and. For every story you see of like the community that comes together to buy a car so that right. like a, a, a person who works as a service, uh, like cleaning bathrooms or whatever can drive to work or some shit, you will also find, again, like GoFundMes for shooting victims. Right. You will also find like beautiful, heartwarming stories about how this kid held open the window and got shot so that his friends could escape. Right. And the question is, how the fuck is that supposed to be hardwarming? Right. 
right? We're training these kids. What we are endorsing is not that we're making mandatory and, and, and condoning the supererogatory above and beyond the call of duty sacrifices of people, even as we make, we force them to be in those positions. I think that gets to, uh, there's the kind of monetization of these shootings and their aftermath that the neoliberal framework kind of gets at. But one of the things you really helpfully pointed out, Pat, was the, the emotional texture of this. And you mentioned like the HR person needing to you know learn how to deal with a mass shooting. But I think one of the examples you gave in your piece of active shooting drills at uh, schools is really interesting because you, you did specifically point out the emotional toll that takes on individuals. Uh, and, you know, so a teacher becomes not just responsible for fostering like creativity and learning, but also if they're if they have to like have a gun on them, they have to be prepared at any moment to, you know, use that gun against possibly even one of their students. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess one of my questions that kind of connects to all this is then what is this doing to us? Like, like as human beings, like what is the emotional toll it takes and like what kind of human beings are we producing in this system? Uh, because that that I thought was one of the the really interesting points you you drilled down on in this piece. You can always count on Matt to bring it back to the human. <laughs> no, look, I mean, I, I get texts from teachers sometimes, right? And now and and I, I can't get more granular about this because, like, you know, yeah. they're, they're they can to me, but it's like describing what they have to make their children do in these trainings. And the point at which you are stopping a social studies class or, you know, just interrupting people as they drink kids, as they drink juice boxes to make them all go into a bathroom and crawl up on install toilet stalls and stand on toilets so their feet aren't visible beneath yeah. them because a bad man is going to come in. I mean, this is, we're inflicting low level constant trauma on our children and we're doing it basically, I mean, I'd argue we're doing it to like put them in a posture of constant attenuated fear, right? And also we're delegate, well, part of this is also like making kids like, are you train the kids so they can observe each other, right? And catch red flags as if being a child isn't stressful enough today, right? But like we keep on devolving responsibility to them and it's abusive, right? But what's so crazy about it to use it the term that you know, I probably shouldn't be using, but like, what's so mad? There's a madness here, which is that we teach our children to accept the possibility of being killed by an adult with a thousand dollar assault rifle for that to be as natural as, you know, a tornado or the rain or, you know, a fire. And Jesus Christ, the social order we're naturalizing there, like, we're we're teaching them to be, we're teaching them to expect to be victimized in this particular completely unnecessary way. Right. And this is where the rhetoric of the political comes in in a big way, because like last year after the um, the walkout, uh, there were all these national walkouts for students. Right. Schools were threatening to penalize children because if they if they undertook political acts like leaving classes and talking about how that might affect their grades and how they'd score on tests. Or even you know, the, 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 the president of this morning talking to people like as he was leaving the White House to go play golf or the fuck he was going to do with himself, someone asked him, like, well, what would you say to children who are afraid? And his answer was, well, they might someday grow up. They just, they'll be fine. Tell them they might someday grow up to be president too. 
I mean, yeah, let's hope they don't catch a bullet in the meantime. But you know what? If they, if they work hard enough, they'll be able to matriculate into the workforce. And maybe one of them will become a president. And and then they can tell kids to, you know, chin the fuck up and not get killed. And maybe they'll become right. president, too. It's an incredible abdication of any kind of responsibility. And we have this sort of like, I'm the one, I, I want to be very clear. I will not co-sign a meaningless, evacuated language of nihilism. Right. Like that tweet being like, we don't care about right. these kids. So like, we're you know, give up. I mean, like what the outcome of that is like, I guess like just like shooting yourself maybe to get it over with. I don't fucking know. Right. But on some basic level, it is hard not to feel nihilistic watching your friends get murdered and seeing adults do nothing. The profound cynicism, this is another element too of our, responsibilizing child activists, like counting on this latest generation of the Parkland kids to be the one that bring us to our senses. Right. No, fuck that. We're responsible for right. this. Yeah. I was reminded of, uh, as you were just talking, um, when, um, Toni Morrison died, I, uh, which like talk about a fucking tragic week. She died. David Berman yeah. died, which is maybe not as much yeah. of a national tragedy, but is for some of us. And Tony, I read, I reread Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture, which if you remember is the one where she describes the sort of parable of the children coming into the, you know, the cave or the home or, or the, the castle or wherever there is this sort of sage figure. It's just a parable that exists in a lot of cultures. And she's, she's blind. The, the sage is blind. And the, the, the children mm-hmm. want to challenge her ask her something that she can't answer. Um, and they're her, they, they say, uh, we have a bird in our hand. Um, like, tell us whether it's alive or dead. Mm. And uh, the first half of the speech, Toni Morrison says, uh, is from the perspective of, of adults, of the, of the sage wisdom of, of, the, of the older, of this person who's, you know, accumulated knowledge over the course of a life of suffering. Mm. And she says... I don't know, but it's in your hands. The bird is in your hands. Like, all I can say is that the bird is in your Mm -hmm. hands, which is to say your attempt to kind of like capture me in this kind of adolescent way is beyond, is not the point. The point is that you have the bird and it's your responsibility, right? If you killed it already, you live with that. If you have it now, it's under your care and you're responsible. The second half of the speech is from the perspective of the children who say, like, why won't you actually talk to us? We came here to ask you for guidance, right? You misinterpreted us as uh, petulant. But in fact, what we're looking for is guidance, the wisdom that you supposedly have, and you're giving us nothing. It's an incredible speech, but I was reminded of that. Uh, anyway, that was an, I interrupted you. <coughs> but no. We'll, we'll put that, we will absolutely put that in the lecture in the show notes. It's, it's, abs- it's stunning. People ask me, like, what are we supposed to do? Right. And, like, I have the pat answer, which is, like, well, don't double down on gun power. Like, and I can get policy. Like, there are all this shit we can do that just involve, you know, not hiring more cops to deal with problems, not responsibilizing children further, not, you know, all, all this awful shit that we do time and again, right? right? But the real answer is what you have to do is you have to, con- you have to give a shit in a consistent way over time. You can't expect the most recent crop of dead kids to be the thing that somehow changed the social order that you co-sign day in, day out. Everyone constantly being like, 
well, why, why, why won't this change? Why won't this change? Well, it's on us. That's much bigger than policy. It, it means it means actually just structurally caring and understanding that like we may not have certain answers, but we can't afford ourselves the consistent luxury of the same answers over and over again. The, the questions become answers. Like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, it happened because people are sitting around saying, why did this happen? Pat, I do, you know, in some ways, I think the way our conversation has proceeded means that, you know, we began by talking about, you know, in the wake of these shootings, there's always the very narrow, um, you know, should we ban this kind of weapon? What about background checks? You know, there are these kind of small bore policies that may or may not be good ideas um, that, that, that could possibly be, you know, action we can take. But one question, reading your work and talking with you that I've wondered about is, in one sense, by stepping back the way you do and offering a kind of framework for understanding all this that you know, if we're talking about a social order that has been centuries in the making, and then even if we you know move to neoliberalism and and think about that as a you know, a kind of economic and moral regime that's you know especially been instantiated in the last few decades. Either way, I mean, what do you do with a problem that has been centuries in the making? You know, is there a way in which the you know if the way to respond to this is to change the way we live what does that look like practically depending on how politically radical we want to get mm -hmm. there are i think there's a spectrum of answers do we want to spend time in like the, the end of the pool where we're like thinking about more policy level stuff and again we have to bracket like what's politically feasible right i mean one answer is this is something i think about a lot it's just like a lot of the interventions that are most likely to lower gun deaths to uh, diminish control, like coercive control and intimate partner violence or, or to, to, un, to, to lower police lethality, if you want to call it that. They involve basically stuff that, to use policy language, is very unsexy. They involve targeted interventions on an incremental level that address specific kinds of vulnerability through various non-carceral things. Let's presume people actually, people are like, well, what about Chicago? Let's presume we actually do care about Chicago in a sustained way. If you look, if you interview, well, it's like, we'll say it's a little basic stuff where it's like, well, clearly like we need more fucking trauma centers, right? Like people are just dying because there's insufficient hospital space, but also like, you know, people get, we, we focus so much on the deaths. We don't talk about how a lot of people get shot and then live their lives in immiseration right. and develop drug dependency on painkillers, or they become caught up in, 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 in criminalized behavior because they're trying to treat themselves or pay for their medical bills, et cetera. Right. So it's like, but also there's a little stuff where it's like, if you actually do interview the young men who are carrying guns illegally in places like Chicago or, or, or Baltimore or wherever, and you ask them, what, what's the one thing that you would need to stop doing this? The answer is almost universally. I would like a job with dignity that allows me to make my bills. Yep. That's like, so you can, you can have this type of intervention where it's like, well, look at the individual space, think about the categories of vulnerability there, and then look at things that might lower that vulnerability that don't involve more cops and putting more guns there. Right. Cause at the point in which we're just already dealing with that, where you're picking up the bodies or making new ones, it's already too late. This is, oh, there's a way in which like thinking about an America that's outside, that's no longer a gun power, if we want to call it mm -hmm. that it, it's on par and very related to thinking about like police abolition or de de decarceration. 
a lot of the double binds that people face and a lot of the fact that the, the system doubles down constantly is because people who are comparatively comfortable want to have things both ways. And I, what I mean by that is that there's something profoundly contemptible at this point that people who are like, we're better than this. We are just shocked that in this country, which is the largest manufacturer, exporter, and importer of guns on the planet, we are shocked, just shocked that we have a gun violence problem. <laughs> right. Right. Like, like Americans per capita have more guns in their homes and more people in prison than any other nation on the planet in human history. And worse, and, and, and the level of our discourse is still talking about how we're better than this. Right. Whatever the solutions are going to be, they have to be real. We have to look at who we are. And we're not even at that point yet. And that's, that's bleak. There's something really perverse about the fact that we're turning to children to give us new answers and to fix this when you have to be an adult to be to have developed this complete repertoire of essentially like hypertrophy childishness. You have to be an adult who is really invested in multiple ways and trained in multiple ways to be that well stupid. Now I'm just thinking about Toni Morrison again, but like the, the, the speech from the perspective of the children is really worth reading in the, in the context of this discussion, because Basically, what they're saying to her is, you created this world, you destroyed it, and now you're making us responsible for fixing it. And in the end, in the end of the speech, which everyone should read, there's collaboration. It's that the two stories um, tell the whole, the whole thing. And once everything has mm. been heard, what, what, what ultimately has been done is that something has been created, something novel has, has been produced, which if... To, to you know, which we could maybe somewhat saccharinely like apply to this conversation, which is that it it's 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 absurd to place the responsibility upon young people to like rely on the fact that they have been less acculturated and disciplined by the the order the social order of gun power. It's that's it's morally monstrous to do that, but also because they are in that position they are essential, right? And that there that there would have yeah. to be, you know, when we think about the sorts of movements that would be capable of toppling some of the systems that are reproduced by gun power or that um, constitute it, it, it would have to be an intergenerational movement is basically what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. one, and one that was just as thoroughly and intimately aware of the historical context, the history that produces the present, which is what, kind of, you know, metaphorically older generations provide, and but, but also not so weighted by history and, its, and how history produces ideology and naturalizes existing social orders, not so weighted by it um, that it can't do the political imagining that you're calling for. Yeah. Well, do we have a lot more to cover here? I think we've kind of, we're getting to a natural ending place. Yeah, I I think at this point it would be kind of uh, 
unnatural to like shift to something like the shooter's manifesto. Yeah. You know, right. Or something very particular about one of these recent shootings that I I think you're right, Sam. Yeah. Uh, I mean, also like the shooter's manifesto, like we were rereading it before we started recording. It's so, it's so banal. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it doesn't show you something that you haven't seen before. It's like, you know, I don't know if you ever listened to Aquaville River, the, that band. There's like this story that's from, yeah. there's this song that's from the perspective of a killer. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. he's being, you know, interviewed by the media after he's done this thing. Um, and um, uh, he says, like, they're looking at my face. Um, they, they're, they're looking for evil. They think that they can, they'll be able to see evil in my face, but evil doesn't look like anything. And like, <laughs> I feel like reading that, manifesto it's like this doesn't look like it doesn't look like evil it's not something that exists out of our like conception of normalcy that it doesn't like you know evil doesn't like invade from the outside and and change everything right it pervades the system so when you read that it just it sounds like things people say it sounds like things you hear all the time it sounds like things you read on twitter every single day well pat maybe to close i did have one more question for you which is that especially since uh, in the last uh, few comments here, we've mentioned uh, the young people, the, you know, the Parkland survivors who, you know, took on a certain role in our public life, at least for a period of time. And, you know, when you think of children, you do think of the future. I do want to ask, is there anything that gives you hope <laughs> right now? Uh, when you look out at the scene, is, is there anything that you think has, as someone who's been tracking these mass shootings and and uh, been paying attention to gun violence for for years now uh, is there anything that shifted is there anything that gives you something to hold on to um and and if not you know what would have to happen to make you think that there's you know the lights getting through the cracks a little bit there are a bunch of things that are making me feel like like i feel like the and I can actually I'll allude to that extent that the article the the nation thing right like I was I remember like so just to, to summarize it for the readers like that I was doing this sort of wild gun training thing and and at this basically I would paramilitary slash corporately monetized facility in Nevada and it, sure. with my friend Evan Sinkovitnarski who's work as a photographer I'd encourage people to check out and perhaps we could link to we will uh, rather thank you sorry I just want to say. So this is a a thing that people typically pay for to go get more like intense gun training, like training and using firearms for defense, and which makes a lot of money for the people who run it. Yeah, no, this place is called. You, I, I'm not going to plug them on the show, but you can read the you can read the nation, you can yeah. find them, and, and if you do a little bit of googling, you'll you'll you'll, you'll also find out that it's um, even more sort of wild than what made it into that article. Um, but it was, and it, it implicates a lot of the things we're talking about insofar as that, like, it was a, just a surreal, like, resort-style compound in the middle of a desert that I, I later learned had been uh, uh, ethnically cleansed of its original inhabitants in a particularly grisly mm-hmm. way, and where all these people were, this town, uh, Parump, where people were coming in either to, to, to race sports cars and this in one facility which was unaffiliated, like there's like a Lotus track there, which is kind of weird, or they were coming there to learn how to 
uh, defend their homes and the, themselves. And it was it was the full battery of what, a lot of what we touched on in the neoliberal thing. Where it was like you get a training and, and how do you interact with the police after you shot someone? little point, little life hacks being like, so you're carrying a gun, you shot someone, make sure you call the, make sure you call the, call the ambulance first so that when your lawyer presents your defense, if there's a, if there's a manslaughter trial, it'll be, it'll be recorded that you called the ambulance first. Incredible. Right. And, and then they'd recommend, and then, 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 oh, by the way, we have a lawyer here who offers insurance. He's a self-defense guy. You have him on retainer so that you can, he can be your third phone call after you call the doctor. He was completely, I think a lot of like Carl Schmidt and like, like this, like inside outside stuff where, but, but like, again, like we're kicking down doors in, in, in fake, we're doing work. We're clearing fake homes with guns in the middle of the desert right. for a week. And, and I'm spending the whole time walking around the big Colt and I don't need to live it on my hip. And there's an incredible picture that your friend took that's in the, in the nation piece where it's, it's all these door frames. It's just single door frames propped up in the desert with people learning how to clear a room like mocking trying to clear a room but it's this eerie picture of all these doors it's just like right like you're saying inside outside like the idea of your domestic your your domestic space as your castle the place you have to defend but transported into this totally barren eerie landscape yeah, it was, it was this perfect blue sky too. It was hard not to feel like, like, like it was one of those weird, like Western things where, like, this it does feel like God's country in that sort of like sense where it's like everything is on the scale that is like Martian, right? And, and the sky was just so beautiful. And 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 meanwhile, we were like kicking down doors and shooting targets of quote unquote bad guys who I later learned were all, um, well, they, they were they were the typical cast of racialized stereotypes of people in various type of attire, but that they were all a former service personnel who had worked there. So like janitors and whatnot posed for, uh, you know, would like put on like a, a fake, like was uniform or whatever. And then you'd shoot them a lot. And wow. But then the whole thing ends. And the last exercise where they also try to get you to sign up into their community. So you're spending tens of thousands of dollars over the years. And maybe you got timeshare on the property that they wanted to build. Like the whole thing was like called some kind of a grifty mm-hmm. kind of scam situation. But they, for the last exercise, they um, they make you do a hostage target thing. Where you've, you've seen these the hostage targets before? I'm not sure I have. It's it's a target in the center. It's a person, a humaniform thing, and then on either side, there's a bad guy pointing a gun at the person's head. Right, and it's it's like the end of like every action move. So many action movies end like this, like like lethal weapon type stuff, right. where it's like you know, can you draw quick enough to headshot the guy before he shoots the head of the person that he's got hostage, right? And they um they ask us like the names of people we love and write the name of the person you love, and then shoot the person who's taking them hostage. And um, it was I started having that feeling again of like you just got to do this, you got to do this. This is real. This is real. This is real. And uh, I got a couple shots off and I did it. Like I sunk them for a fairly consistent distance. And it's this big, actually, uh, 1911 that malfunctioned and nearly blew my hand off. But that's another story. Um, and as I'm doing it, I have to shoot the second bad guy, right? And I've already landed it perfectly. And it's, you know, if, if you do any competitive shooting, it's a flow state thing. You get into it. And the more you think about it, the less good you are. At it. Right. Like kind of like if you like you, you narrate to yourself, how am I going to throw a ball? And then you're like, you verbalize it to yourself. You're not going to throw it as well. Um but something about it, I got the first two in or whatever the number it was. And then the last one, I just like, oh, something struck me about how fake the whole thing was. About how like I was having this intensely emotional experience to like protect the people who are mine and the people who I love. And it was all about this transformation of love. She was like, you have to vindicate your love by killing. 
And something about, I just, in a way that was like profoundly distressing, but also like clarifying, was like, oh, this is a false choice. This is a simulation that is producing the mind, it, it produces the mindset and the outcome that it's giving to you right now is given. Right. And it felt so fake. It felt like oh, you're being programmed to do something here. This is making you feel responsible. It's, it's producing down in a single moment of a gunfight, a whole bunch of terrible social consequences and, and foreclosures that are coming out in this one moment. Um, and I whiffed. I, 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 I got the guy, I think, but I also took off a bit of my wife's ear when I did the shooting. <laughs> um, but it was a sense it was like, this is a lie. Right. I keep on thinking about how we, in all these debates that we have, it's always like, well, what are you going to do when someone kicks down your door? What are you going to do when it gets to this point? Right. And I can't talk about like bare structures of fascism. I can't imagine a worse way to organize our choices and our lives and our rights in a society than based upon the template of that kind of encounter. Right. Like to abstract that moment of exceptional violence and absurd like action movie shit and then make that the be all and end all decision of how we relate to each other in shared space in an environment of vulnerability and risk. It's so fake. It's so constructed. It's a false choice. It's the outcome of other choices we don't want to think we're making. Right. And so when you ask me like, what's the hope that I have here? I get the sense if there's anything coming out now. This repetition, this training, it's exhausting itself that we're going through with these all these horrible events. Mm. And we're sensing maybe, maybe that maybe we should maybe we shouldn't just be focusing on what we feel like we need to do in this moment of horror and stress, mm. because that's only produces more of those moments. And so I see glimmers of it in some of the organizing that is, for want of a better word, intersectional, where mass shooting survivors are working with people who are survivors of police violence or doing not uh, like community outreach work or community organizing work or even community self-defense work that does not involve police, but tying that to other types of violence. But getting a sense that to the extent to which our cognitive and emotional siloing of this violence is about foreclosing choices and making us make the same choices over and over again, people are hopefully, and this is what gives me hope, are getting a sense that those, those options are false, that those choices are false, and that reducing everything to those moments is not a way to live anymore. Right. And I don't know how many more people are going to die, and I'm sure people are going to, and that's another thing we got to keep, like, that's going to really fucking suck, is that the realization that even if we do all the right things, this is going to keep happening mm-hmm. for a long time. But there may be a, a more consciousness, I hope, and I hope it's not just me like centering my own experience here and erasing what's already happened in the past, that maybe maybe our options are exhausted at this point. And maybe as other things happen, maybe as climate change makes things worse, maybe as our politics grow more part, like our, the false choices of our political economy, our partisan choices, that those feel exhausted too. But there's something about like, if you tell people more and more, they, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. At some point you realize maybe you do have a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. That's very interesting. Very powerful. And it did uh, your line there at the end, uh, that there's no choice. I, I couldn't help but think of Margaret Thatcher's line. There is no alternative. Right. 
And maybe one thing we can do is just remind ourselves and other people that there is, in fact, alternatives. That right. it doesn't have to be this way. I think it's also it's also interesting that what you just described, in some way, tr- sublimates what we think of as a problem, which is our exhaustion, into maybe the basis for a new kind of politics. I mean, because you do see this across the board, right? Like with our healthcare system, mm-hmm. the the things that people are experiencing, it is absurd. It shouldn't have to be this way. And more and more people are just saying, this is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, I mean, I, I think that's one thing Pat's kind of analysis, what's very helpful about it is that it does allow you to see these connections yeah. that we're operating in. You know, lots of different problems are are a part of a, a kind of a single regime. Yeah. Uh, and and we're seeing again and again across the board, whether it's with the gun violence, or whether it's our healthcare system, or any number of things, just the contradictions and absurdities are piling up. Right. And and at some point, you would hope it just kind of has to break. Yeah. And the regime the regime the regime requires myopia. So the, what it what it fosters in us is an inability to see anything else when we're looking at one problem, mm-hmm. um, and the like the kind of spectacle of of, of violence, which is like inherent to like the American experience and the American project, is also it produces myopia. It produces an inability to see anything but what is right in front of our faces. Right. Well, Pat, <laughs> we're uh, this was so uh, great, and we're. I, I mean, speaking for myself, um, I'm so happy that you are our first guest on yeah. uh, Know Your Enemy. Too, Sam. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself and Matt. <laughs> Um, whose every thought and feeling I am uh, aware of and intimately connected to. Uh, we're both so grateful that you took all this time and uh, that you're that you're so brilliant and um, oh. and that your that your work clearly comes from a place of love in addition to uh, uh, your your uh, striking intellect. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Thank you so much. I, thank you. Like, this, I really needed to talk to you guys after this week, so. It means a lot to me, and and I really appreciate the work you're doing. So thank you so much. All right. That was our interview with Patrick Blanchfield. Um, I know it was a little bit intense and... um, Sobering. Sobering. And I think that was, you know, ultimately our intention was to treat recent traumatic events with the degree of seriousness that they deserve, but also to provide a framework for understanding them in a way that doesn't feel as disempowering and confusing as these kinds of events tend to feel as they happen over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so thank you for listening. Um, again, we're, we're very excited about our partnership with Descent. We encourage people to sign up for the Patreon. And uh, we're really grateful for everyone who's been listening to the podcast from the beginning. Um, not just the Patreon subscribers, <laughs> right. everyone. Hey, we got in trouble last time for saying we appreciate all the new yeah. listeners, but you know those of you who have been with us since day one, like we know you're the hardcore, we're really hardcore fans. fans. So uh, don't feel slighted by any of this. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know we are going to try to do more interviews, and at the same time continue to do the sorts of episodes that we started out doing, which is. Matt and I uh, reading a book, reading a set of books and trying to 
you know, unpack a, a kind of set of ideas for you. But we do want to supplement that with uh, interviews from people who know stuff that we don't know. I think right. that Patrick sort of really epitomizes a thinker who is has thought deeply about something that, that neither Matt nor I have thought about as deeply. Right. And one other point we wanted to make uh, right at the end is that we do have a uh, an email associated with the podcast, and it's knowyourenemypodcast at gmail.com. And, you know, so you can send us hate mail if you want. You can spam us. But uh, especially we're interested in a couple things. Feedback, I think, generally, what works, what doesn't work. Possibly you might have ideas for topics for the main episodes, that is, the, the, the meat and potatoes episodes that are outside of the paywall. Just topics you really want to see us address. Yeah, if you and if you have, you know, a question or whatever, we can right. we can totally... We'll field those and address them on the air sometimes. Maybe if we get enough questions, we can do like a mailbag episode or whatever. Yeah, every couple um, of weeks we might do a mailbag episode. Or a mailbag segment. Right. Whatever. Yeah. We, so, we really love hearing from you because, you know, I mean, maybe this isn't obvious, but Matt and I are both like deeply insecure <laughs> and uncertain. <laughs> at very insecure. At like basically every single moment, whether what we're doing makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you write to us with feedback, we're, we're always really grateful. Right. Uh, totally. So again, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you.